Good morning. Uh, how are you all doing today? I think you said something to each other already. Is that correct? Didn't you say something about the weather? Didn't you say that? I think so. I think you said that. Could you turn to someone and say good morning then? I, I, at least Matthew left me that one. I think he did. Maybe, did he? Yeah, I think so. It's all good. It's all good. Ah, it's great to see you this morning. Grab your Bibles. Turn to the book of Acts today, our second, our second part in the book of Acts as we journey through that over the next few months together. Today, Acts chapter 2, we will begin where we left off last week, Acts chapter 2 and verse 37. But before we get there, could you bow your heads for a moment and let's have a prayer before we kind of to get into our teaching this morning. Father, we are amazed at your goodness in our life. We are so thankful for how you guide and direct us, how that you have sent the Holy Spirit into our lives to illuminate the Word of God, to bring us to a point of conviction, to drawing us to you. Father, to that of helping us to remember the things you placed in our hearts. And also, Lord, that of empowering us. The greatest of all, I think, is, Lord, is empowering us to be a witness for you. So, God, empower us today as we desire more of you as we journey through this book of the church, that you would guide us and direct us. Father, for those that are in need today, we pray for them. For those that are struggling, we pray for them. Father, today we pray very specifically for Zach Burmaster, who is simply struggling in the hospital day after a car accident this, this weekend, that we believe you're the healing power in his life. And Lord, the book of Acts teaches us that. So we speak healing to him today in the powerful name of Jesus. So open our hearts and open our minds to your word. May it be real to us today in your name. Amen. So today we're talking simply about so that through the church... For the first couple of chapters in the book of Acts, we find these very foundational teachings and understandings about who the church is and what the church does. And so that is exactly where we are again this morning. Last week, we ended with uh, Acts chapter 2 and verse 41. We covered the, the uh, preceding parts of the book of, or the chapter 2 of the book of Acts. We, we covered that, not reading through all of that, but we covered the events of the day of Pentecost. We covered that of the apostles being clothed with power from on high, which we get that term from the book of Luke chapter 20, 24. We covered the manifestation of that of the Spirit coming upon the disciples, them speaking in tongues, and that of the languages of those in the city of that day. And then then after that, Peter's powerful sermon to those that are in the streets as they simply emerge from that of the upper room. And so following that, that event in the disciples' lives, that I mean clothed with power from on high on the day of Pentecost, that purpose, that purpose and design of that experience that day, and it's an experience as we discovered throughout Scripture last week, subsequent to salvation, that the, it's, it, we know that at salvation, that the Holy Spirit resides within our lives as we are saved. But yet what we find here t- taught to us in the book of Acts, starting at the end of the book of Luke, is that of the Holy Spirit. It's an, it's an experience with him subsequent that of salvation and empowering of the believer for a purpose, for a purpose. And we have said this, well, the last week, and we said again this week, that really the book of Acts has this singular purpose. It has this very singular point that it wants to get over to us, and that is that the believer is empowered for the purpose of spreading the gospel, for taking us out of our comfort zone, because what we know, it says in Acts chapter 1, verse 2, that according to that of the empowerment of the believer, it's for the purpose of being a witness first in Jerusalem, the place where we're comfortable, and those around us that we know, then where? Then outside of Jerusalem to Judea, and then to Samaria, and then the other parts of the world. So it's an empowering the believer to simply preach and teach the gospel, to share the gospel, and to disciple others. And so 
what happens is Peter comes out of that upper room experience. He preaches a super powerful sermon that day, and it takes us back to Acts chapter 2, verse 37. We read these texts last week. I want to begin where we left off. And so after the sermon, here's what happens. This is so powerful in, in Acts chapter 2, verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And so Peter's preaching this powerful sermon. They hear his sermon. They're convicted by the Holy Spirit because we know that's the work of him in our life. He testifies of Christ. And, and, and they said to Peter um, and the rest of the disciples, brothers, what shall we do? In other words, we've heard this. The Holy Spirit is moving on our life. You have to give us an opportunity for response. I've always thought this would be so powerful that every time that I taught or every time that Matthew would teach or every time that Travis would teach, that sometime toward the end of the teaching, somebody would stand up and say, hey, listen, you've said enough. Can we just get to the time to praying? You know, kind of like thing. You know, and that's kind of exactly what's happening right here. Is exactly, And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized. It's the first baptism. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the second baptism for the purpose is for you. And he goes back and he quotes the book of Joel again, reminding them of the coming of the Holy Spirit and that promise. And for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself, not just this select group, understand this, these are farm fresh believers. These are people that have just come to God. They've heard their languages spoken as the Holy Spirit fell upon the disciples in the upper room. They've heard that. They've just heard this sermon. They've come to Christ. And so he says, oh, this promise is for you, he says. This promise is for you. And verse 40 says, And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. And so, Mark, if, if this gift is real, and yes, it is. We know that from Scripture. Then, then how do I proceed and where do I go? This is where we left off last week. Where do I go from here? And it's the point of Acts, I believe, and that is the empowerment of the believer to be a witness. And so what, what Luke records Peter saying here, it's powerful, is there's about three things that he gives us in direction and how do we proceed as far as this gift for our life. He said in 37 and 38 of the verses we just read, he said, first you hear the word of God that you know and you hear that Jesus has been crucified and he was buried. He was resurrected on the third day. He ascends to the Father that he is exalted over all of creation, as we know it, in all of the creative order, that we understand that in him is forgiveness and grace and mercy alone. In him is all of those things and him alone, that we become not only hearers, but we also become doers, that we believe those things and they become part of who we are deep within our heart and we act on what we've heard. And then he says in verse 39, he says, and I love, because this is my favorite part, he says, and to those, and to those that are called by God, and so he starts out by saying, it's to promise you and your children. He's saying, okay, it's for the Jews. It's for you that have this background in God. For you that have under, you understand who, who Jehovah is. You have this heritage. You've been in church all of your life. It's for you. And it would be very sad if God just left it at that. But yet what happens is Peter begins in his words, he goes further than that. And he said, no, it's for all those also that are far off for the Gentiles, that those who have struggled with life, those who have lived in darkness, but Christ has come in and become the light of your life. For those of you that know little about theology and those things in your life, that you have been called in what God does through Peter, his servant recorded by Luke, is this. What he does is he levels the playing field for you and I. 
And he says it's not for some select group. It's not for those that have just gone to church all of their life. It's not. It's not for those who were raised in a Christian home and their mom and dad followed Christ and they had devotion at dinner every night. It's not. It's for everyone who has accepted Christ. And I love that. Because it levels the field for you and I this morning to say the empowerment of the Holy Spirit upon the believer to be a witness for Christ is for all who follow Christ. And then in verse 41, which we will read in just a moment, he says it's for those that receive the word. Not only are we hearers, but we also receive it. It becomes part of who we are and we walk this out within our lives that, that we trust God more, that he is for us and he is not against us, that this is progress, not perfection. So it's imperfect and it's messy at times in all of our lives. And we fluctuate with doubt and fear at times. Yes, absolutely we do. But we trust that God has a plan for our life and he's working that plan for our life. And when we do fail, we're quick to repent. We're not thinking that every time we make a mistake that somehow we lose our salvation because that we realize that that the, the basis for our salvation, the security of our salvation is found not in our faithfulness, but it's found in God's faithfulness. And that's important that we understand that this morning. So I love this, that you hear the word of God, you understand the things about who God is and what God has done, that we realize it's for all those that are called, regardless of your background, it's for all that are called by God, And for those that receive the word, and the word is implanted in their life, that this gift is for them. And then you get to verse 41, which we touched just for a moment with that last point about for those that receive the word. It says in verse 41 that so those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. The purpose of the book of Acts, of being clothed with power from on high, the singular point, it's this. It's exactly what we just read, yes, that we find the church birthed in power to simply create converts, to bring people to God, that what we find is the church birthed in power, that the Holy Spirit is working through the disciples, and they are making disciples, and it's messy and inconsistent because we know these guys, we've talked about them for years together, and they're not the most perfect ones, they're definitely a motley crew, yes they are, without any doubt, we connected them very well in so many areas of their lives, yet we find here the church birthed in power, the Holy Spirit working through the disciples, and they are making disciples. It is a powerful picture for you and I. It's powerful. And then you go to verse 42. And in verse 42, traditionally what this is called, is called the fellowship of believers. So we get through this point. We get to, we, we've gotten through Peter's sermon. And, and we've gotten through this, this opportunity for people to come to Christ. And we know there are 3,000 of them that come to Christ that day. And then, then the church is born. And so here's how the church lives. I love this text. Here's how they live. We'll read this. And it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. They are seriously persistent about these four things, about the apostles' teaching. And that is the New Testament teachings. They are serious about fellowship. They do life together is what it means. They're breaking bread. And what we understand that I mean is that is communion. But understand culturally in, in this time what communion is. Communion is not what we do here. Okay, It's very different. Here we have, we have Welch's grape juice. I know some of you really want some wine. I understand that, right? But we have Welch's for you. Absolutely. We actually get the name brand. We don't get the knockoff for you. So, you know, we don't hold anything back. We have Welch's grape juice. And then we have those little round little discs. We don't know what they are. I think they're styrofoam. I'm not real sure, you know. 
Yeah, but we have those little things and we have those out there for you. that unleavened bread is it represents and, and we share those things for you. But here in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, that communion is actually a meal. They sit down and they break bread together. They talk about what Christ has done for them. They share the blessings of God within their lives and they commune. It's a very deep relationship they have with God and with each other. What a very powerful understanding of what communion is. And then the last thing is prayer. Look at verse 43. I underline the first part of this because we're going to come back to this in a moment. And all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Verse 44. And all who believed were together and had all things in common and they were selling their possessions. They were selling their possessions um, and, and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. It's, then you say, well, wait a minute, Mark, you got to back up for a moment, because what are you going to say to us? That afterwards, if we go to the table in the lobby and we sign over everything that we own. First of all, I don't own a whole lot. The bank and I own some things. Yes, we do. But, you know, uh, so what are we going to do? We're going to sign all this over. No, what this, is, what this is talking to you and I about is something even deeper than that. But it's talking about a heart of generosity in our life. It's talking about a lifestyle of generosity. It's not just what I do here on Sunday morning when we, plan, when we pass the basket around and I, I give my offering and my tithe. And, and it's not what you do when you just necessarily uh, you know, give to a, a charity throughout the year. No, no, it goes far beyond that. This is speaking about your heart. It's about a heart of generosity, a lifestyle of generosity. Verse 46, and day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. This passage of Scripture called the Fellowship of Believers. I love it because it's kind of sandwiched in between two bookends. And if you look at it, we've already read verse 41. Verse 41 says that, that 3,000 souls after Peter's sermon was added to the church. And the other bookend is verse 47 after we just saw the life of the church. And that is that we find that the Lord added to their number day by day. It's the point of Acts. It's what God empowers us to do. It's the working of the Holy Spirit through the church. Between that is how the church lives out their life. But we find that it's bookend simply by that of God bringing people that are lost to Him. It's about you and I being Christ to the world, is what it is. It's about them seeing the Lord in our lives. It's about you and I telling others about what God has done within our lives and how God has changed us to simply don't, we don't have to know all the theological aspects of it, but simply saying, this is what God has done in my life. I don't necessarily understand exactly how all of this happened, but all I know is I am different since I've come to Christ. That's exactly what this is. So the bookends of the life of the church is that of Christ bringing souls into the kingdom of God. It's powerful. So I read that and I thought, you know, what are we doing and, and what are we about then? What are we doing and what are we about? At the end of the day, what's the goals in here? You know, what's the goals for us? You say, Mark, that's a trick question. Sometimes you have trick questions, so we don't know what to do. Are you going to ask us to raise our hand or not? We're not really sure. We're preparing ourselves, you know, because it's very obvious. It's Sunday morning. It's in the South, so we're here to get our church on. That's what we're here to do, you know. That's it. And some of you are thinking, oh, this is one of those guilt sermons. 
In a moment, we're going to actually hear, we're going to hear the guilt truck backing up. We're going to hear the beeping sound. We're going to hear the, the dump part of it raised. And you're going to dump this huge load of guilt upon us because we're not doing these kinds of things. So what you want us to do is to live more benevolently. And what you want us to do is simply be more consistent in our church attendance. We'll be here next week. We're not sure after that, unless it rains now. We're not really sure, you know, about that. And can I tell you, it's far more than all of that, yet some of that. Because it deals with our hearts. It deals with our hearts, minus the guilt. It deals with our hearts. So when I was studying these texts, I came up with this thought, how the church lived, because that's exactly what this is, and that's our first point. But also I said how the church should live, or how should we live at the church, as the church? How should we live as the church? You say, Mark, I've heard these things about that of the apostles' teaching and about fellowship and breaking bread together and about uh, prayer and all those kinds of things. Can I tell you something that sometimes when we take Scripture, we try to look for something that's not there. We look for something that's maybe deeper. We're looking for a new revelation or another word because surely that's not what God actually means. Can I tell you, this is a very literal text. Understand it. You take it for face value today. Don't, don't look for something beyond that to try to justify what you're doing or what you're not doing. But you really have to take this at very much face value. These things of fellowship and teaching and prayer and communion together and breaking bread. So I think it brings us to this thought it brings us to this thought that are we called to be attractional as a church or are we called to be incarnational incarnational and and what is our methodology as a church it really is because when we look at this text of how the church lived in the book of acts which is an example for you and i we look how god has bookended it with that of bringing the unbeliever into the kingdom of god and we take that and we lay that over our lives as a pattern And I'm talking about all of us in this room. We take that and lay that over our lives as a church collectively and as as individuals. Then how do the edges mesh up for us? How do they they match up? How how do the edges simply match up? I mean, that's a huge question. Yes. Because when we think about this, are we attractional as a church? Or are we incarnational as a church? Then what do you mean by attractional march? Is our goal that of building a fortification, that we kind of build a wall around ourselves to keep ourselves safe from everyone else and the world outside of us? That somehow we create a culture here where we don't have to rub shoulders with other people that are different than us? Is that what church is all about? Yes. Is that what it is? Well, I think some people think so, and some people see church exactly that, exactly that way, yes. And in order for those outside to get into the inside on where we are, then they simply have to become like we are. They have to become like us, yes. And you say, well, Mark, that's the kind of church I'm looking for that's going to keep me safe from the world around me, going to wall me off. And simply, if they really want to come in, they'll have to look over the wall, see us, and then come over and be like us. That's the church I'm looking for. Can I say something you just wanted with all the love that I can? You're at the wrong church then, okay? Because that's what, that is not what this is about. Not at all. Because Acts chapter 2 says that we are to be a church that simply is incarnational in our methodology. What does that mean? That we want to be in the world, but not be of the world. There's a contrast. 
That God didn't call us to build a wall around ourselves to protect ourselves of the world, but God has called us out into the world. That's the story of the book of Acts. He sent us out into the world as a contrast, as to say there is a better way. There is something better than what you are living in. There is life and there is hope and there, there is something that can bring stability to your life in a world that's changing all the time. That is exactly what the message is. That's it. No. Listen, and church has never been about saving people to church. It's not that. And I'll tell you why that we don't save people to church. Understand this. Because in this room this morning and here, and who's going to be here next week? In this room this morning and those will be here next week. Listen, there's a bunch of people who aren't saved. There is. That's true. And it's not just about taking people that are in the world and bringing them in and kind of mixing them up in the mix of all of us. That's not it at all. But this is about a heart transformation. That's why, that's why the New Testament church in the book of Acts was extremely persistent and very serious about teaching the New Testament teachings, about fellowship, deep fellowship in relationship with one another, about communion that, separa- that celebrated the things that God had done in their life, and about prayer together. And what I find in the book of Acts chapter 2 is, one, a deep love for God, which results in a deep love for one another, is exactly in a dedication to each other. And they express these things, and they achieve these things specifically due to the endowment of power from on high, the Holy Spirit working in their lives. Because sometimes it's hard for you and I in this fellowship to love each other. It is. Because some of you in this room, you are difficult to love. Now, you know that's true. You might as well own it, right? Well, Mark, I got up this morning and I'm in a bad mood. No, no, I'm talking about how you live your life all the time. That you are, you are a challenge to love. I understand that because you may ask some people and they say, well, Mark, you're a challenge to love. I realize that, that there are times that I am too. Reba's not here this morning. I would ask her. She is with Grayson in Charleston today. He had a weekend break. But, but I want to tell you, you could ask her. They say, well, yeah, Mark, there are times when Mark is extremely difficult to love. Absolutely, yes. But sometimes it is. And so what we find, how do they, how do the disciples, how do those in this group live this life out that we find in Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42? How do they live this out? It's simply the empowerment of the Spirit in their lives. We used the text last week, and it's John 14 and 12. I want to read it again to you. For the sake of being repetitive, but I want to read it again to you this morning because I I think it's powerful. And then kind of give you this text in context as we take it out of context so many times. It's John 14 and 12. The words of Christ says to us, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I go to the Father. And I think we take this text and we, we just kind of stretch it out of context in so many ways for our lives. Because if you look at this text in chapter 14 and verse 12 of John, if you look at it in context, because context is everything, that in chapter 13 prior to this, what we have is we find Jesus, he's giving us a new commandment. What is the commandment that Christ gives us in chapter 13? It's this, love one another as I have loved you. And then he follows that command by simply saying to you and I, people will know that you are my disciples if you what? Have love for one another. Yes. And so when I look at this text in context, 
What I truly believe is this. It is so much about caring for others, about engaging in people's lives that are struggling. It's about embracing the outcast. It's about loving one another when we are difficult to love. Is exactly. It's much more about that than it is about you raising the dead or walking on water. You need to realize that. And how do I do this? Well, verse 16 that follows this text that we just read in John 14 and 12, verse 16 is where we find the promise of the Holy Spirit because it is simply being clothed with power from on high. It is that of that baptism of the Holy Spirit within our lives that we walk in the Spirit, that we're able to one, love one another. So we move past these superficial relationships that we have and we truly love each other deeply. And that reflects exactly what we find in Acts chapter 2 and verse 42. Powerful. It's how we love one another. Are there going to be times when we fall out of love with each other? Are we human? I think that's the question, right? Yes, yes, yes. Are there going to be times we struggle with each other? Absolutely. There are going to be those moments in our lives because we are human. But when I take this text in John 14 and 12, And I have so many times over the years used it sort of out of context and saying this is about all the miraculous things that Jesus did. So those are the things he's called me to do. And I'm not saying that he's not called you to simply submit yourself to him and him work miracles through your life. That's not I'm not saying that that's that's off the table. But what I'm telling you is that if you will take this text in true context, what it really engages us to do is to love one another. And when that is tough, when it's tough to love people that are different than us, that is why the Holy Spirit empowers us and how he does us, how he does that in our lives. And I love miracles. Don't get me wrong. I love miracles just as much as anybody in this room does. But what I realized as we said last week, The miraculous does not anchor our soul. But what anchors our soul is that of me loving God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and spirit, and my neighbor as myself. That is religion. That is true relationship. That is true spirituality. And sometimes that's uncomfortable, and that's why I need the Holy Spirit to enable me to do that. But when I come down to this thought about the church life of the church in the book of Acts... Then I say, what's the catalyst behind them that caused them to exist the way they existed? And I go back to this text that we just read uh, from Acts chapter 2, verse 43. It's a very powerful thought. And what it says in Acts 2 and 43, it says this, and it's a very small statement, but it's powerful. And it says, an awe came upon every soul. And awe came upon every soul. And so what I realize is this, it's their view of God. It's the way they see God. That simultaneously in their life, there's this joyful awe and there's this trembling sense of awe within their lives. And what this simply means is that you don't mess with the God of the apostles. This is exactly what it meant. This is exactly what it says. Yes. And what we find today, I think, in our culture is this idea that we like to talk about God a lot. Yes, and God is some inference for an argument. He's a family tradition that we observe at times. Yes, but here, what we find in the hearts and the minds of those in the book of Acts, that he is a stark, fearsome, stunning, awesome, shocking, present reality. He's a reality. Have you ever thought about that? It's this contrast between that of reality and conceptuality. Yes. Because when we look at God as just a concept or an idea or a thought or a point of conversation, 
then the focus is never on him and about his glory, but it's about us. It is truly about us in those things. It's not about him, but it's about us. And so what we do when we look, God, look at God as a concept, we begin to twist God to simply form him into the image that we desire to form him into. Yes. And so we put all these caveats upon God. Well, well God would never do that. God would never think that way. You know, God, God, would, God would never feel, God never gets angry. God never does. All. We put these caveats on God, but when you see God as the reality for who he is, if you look throughout the Old Testament and New Testament, what I find that God being that reality is when God throws up, or when God shows up, yes, yes, when God shows up, things change because he is a reality. I, I, I thought about this. If you look in the Old Testament, when Isaiah walks into the temple, the glory of, the God, glory of God falls. What happens? The temple begins to shake. You find when Moses goes up on the mountain, the glory of God falls. The mountain begins to shake. Moses calls down the Israelites and says, hey, you guys come up here and experience the reality of God. And they say, no, we're fine. We're going to stay down here with our concept of God and we're going to make a golden calf. That's what we're going to do. No, you stay up there with the reality. We're going to stay down here with the concept because we're a little more comfortable down here. If you look in the book of Acts chapter 4, and verse 31, what do you find? Believers begin to pray for boldness. What happens? The place where they are gathering begins to shake and they're all filled with the Holy Spirit. If you look at Acts 16 and 26, we find Paul and Silas are in jail. They begin to sing hymns to God. They have this worship session going on in there in the jail. And all of a sudden there's an earthquake and all the doors begin to open and all the chains fall off. But yet when we realize it, none of them run away. Not one of them run away. They yell to the jailer and say, we're all here. It's okay. Don't Fall on your sword and don't kill yourself because God is in control of all these things. Why? Because God is a reality. He is not a concept. Because when we understand God to be a reality, things change. It changes the way we live our lives. It changes the way we love one another. It changes the way I treat you and you treat me. It changes the way that I am a husband and I am a father. It changes the way I deal with my roommate, who sometimes is very difficult to get along with. It changes the way that I approach my education, my academics. It changes the way I approach my profession. It changes everything in my life when I come to the realization that God is a reality and not just a concept. It changes things. And he explains exactly how they live their life like this. Even under persecution, as we are going to find our way in the book of Acts to the point where Stephen is is martyred in the persecution and Jerusalem begins to ramp up and we know that that drives them out into the the world to preach the gospel, that we understand even under persecution that they have this. Why? Because they realize that God is a reality and God is greater than all things. There is nothing more powerful than their God. And the worst thing that anybody could ever do for them is to take their life. But that gives them a ticket to heaven to be with Christ forever. So we understand that he's a reality that changes everything. Everything changes everything. It's how they're so powerful. The Holy Spirit comes upon them. How they love each other because the Holy Spirit works through their lives. The Holy Spirit brings us a, a realization and illumination that God is a reality and not a concept. They live in the awe of who God is every day and simply things are changed in their lives. So it brings me to this second point. 
that God moves to the church to reveal his manifold wisdom. That's the purpose. That's what God is doing to the church. I have 13 verses to read to you. Can I read them to you very quickly? Then I'm going to illustrate something because maybe you're wondering what this large canvas is up here. And you're thinking that, well, we know that Seth is an artist on staff here, so Seth is going to paint something for us. Can I tell you, you are wrong, okay? You're wrong. Because you are looking at the artist right here. Yes, you are. And it's not going to be good, but just hang with me for a moment because there is a point. But let me read these 13 verses for you. They are powerful. Ephesians chapter 3, because it specifically addresses what the church does and what the church is called to. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. I love the mystery. He talks about the mystery of Christ, and he says that often throughout his letters, which was made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has been known, has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Verse 6, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. Uh, I'm thinking that, boy, that, that had to excite the Gentiles, and it sucked all the air out of the room for the Jews. Did it not? Yes, that, that you are fellow heirs. And he goes on to say, if not that, it's even worse. He goes on to say that members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. 8, 9, and 10, I underline those. Those are what's important for us this morning. All of it's important, but those are what we focus on. To me... Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that, has, that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Here's the thought about those texts 8, 9, and 10. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things. Look at verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. So get this picture for me. You've got to use your imagination for a moment. I know you have one, so you've got to use that. That you have this great, wise painter. You have this great, wise painter, and he is God. Now, you got to remove me from the picture because, number one, I'm not great. Number two, I'm not wise. Number three, I am not a painter. And number four, without a doubt, I am not God, okay? So that eliminates me, all right? So there's this great, wise painter, God. There's this expansive canvas, and it is history. It's everything from Revelation to Genesis and from Genesis to Revelation, everything in between. It's all of history of the creative order. So you have God, this great painter. You have this canvas with his history. And he's using, he's using to paint on this canvas some very ordinary, messy, imperfect, inconsistent brushes. And the painting 
that's on this canvas of history? It's exactly what Paul talks about here. It's the revealing of his manifold wisdom. It's God revealing his manifold wisdom over history. Is what it is. Because God knows that we can't see him physically. So he reveals himself through his wisdom. It's a painting as big as the universe. It's simply, it's as old as creation. It's as lasting as all of eternity. So what God does, he begins to paint his wisdom on that canvas of eternity. I have looked forward to this all week. I really have, yes. So he begins to use different brushes. And he begins to use different colors. These are watercolors, so don't worry. If I drip it on myself, don't tell Reba. I will get it off before she comes home. Yes, right? And so he begins to use different size brushes. Very imperfect, inconsistent brushes. He does. And so what God does, he begins to paint all of history. I would, if I move out of the way, you can see. And so he begins to paint his manifold wisdom. What is that? Mark? Well, that is God revealing himself to us, his character and his very nature. And he does that in such a very detailed way in our lives. He does. He talks about his mercy. He talks about his grace. Oh, there's some on the floor. I knew it would happen. See, it, it was just bound to happen. Yes. He talks about his goodness. There's even moments in there where we understand that what? God is a God of judgment. He is a God of judgment. Yes. What we find here is we find God's plan to redeem mankind in our lives. We find a plan to redeem him. You say, Mark, you're painting straight lines. That's because I'm not an artist. I'm a very linear thinker, okay? So that's just the way I am. So just deal with it, okay? See, Mark, there's no design. We thought this was one of those things that where, you know, you, you like the painter during the song, and then all of a sudden we see a picture of Jesus. If that's what you were thinking, then I'm sorry to disappoint you, okay? Understand this. And understand that I am not Bob Ross today either. So realize that. I wanted a wig to wear this morning to do that, but I thought that you would just never get that image out of your mind. So if there is a mistake up here, I cannot make it into a tree. You know, I can't do that, right? This is what he says, yeah. So you don't know who Bob Ross is. You have to think about that for a moment, okay? Yeah. So God begins to reveal himself in very powerful ways throughout all of history. We've seen that. We see a lot of that in Scripture. We see a lot of that, we see a lot of that, I think, in even nature. We see God revealing himself. Now, here's the thought. Paul uses this term manifold wisdom. But what does that really mean? It's a powerful word for manifold he uses there. In fact, I love this. I got so excited when I discovered this. That the Greek word that he uses for the word manifold here in in this text that we just read from the book of Ephesians, it is not used in anywhere else in the Bible. It's the only place that you find that Greek word in the entire Bible. It's there. And you know what that word means? I'm excited it means that, it, that his wisdom is fashioned and formed in various colors. All the canvas makes sense now. That his wisdom is diversified and complex. It is intricate and very detailed. Paul even adds a prefix to this word, 
The word that simply means many because it is many varying colors and intricacies and variations. And so what I find is here that God is painting history. God is revealing himself in this intricate detail of his mercy, his love, his grace, and his plan to redeem mankind. He's telling the story of his intentions from the very beginning of time to that of the garden in Genesis chapter 3, the fall of man, to God's bringing that promise to you and I in verse 15 of Genesis chapter 3 that he would some, at some point in time redeem man by his son Jesus. And he's making all of this known to us. So here is this. The painter is God. The canvas is history. The masterpiece, he's revealing his manifold wisdom, his nature and his character and his detailed plan. And he's painting history through the church. He paints history through the church. Because he says here in verse 10, that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. But Mark... You've talked about everything except the brushes. You did mention that they were messy and inconsistent. And there are varying sizes, absolutely. But what about the brushes? And I go back to verse 8, is what Paul says about himself. That to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach the gospel to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. If God is the painter, the canvas is the history of the creative order. If the masterpiece this morning is God revealing himself in history through the church, then the brushes are us. They're all of us that follow Christ. They're every one of us in this room. That we are the brushes as messy, as inconsistent, as unreliable as they are at times. As broken and imperfect, imperfect as sinful, that we are the brushes. And when you let that thought really sink from your mind into your heart, it's a sobering thought. That God is creating this masterpiece. He's painting on history his manifold wisdom. He's revealing himself to the world. He's been doing that from the book of Genesis. He's revealing his goodness and his kindness, his mercy, his judgment, yes, his love for you and I, his hate for the things that harm our lives. He's been revealing that from the very beginning. And he paints that message for the world to see with us we are the brushes and when I think about that and I look over here at these brushes that I have used this morning they're a mess there's one that has blue and I can see red coming through it because I double dipped you know kind of deal you know right yeah Oh, I see this one with, with some black paint on it because there are times when I fail and I make mistakes. There are times when I have doubt. There are times when I sin because I'm prone to sin. 
The brushes are in different sizes. Because we are the brushes that God has chose to paint the masterpiece of his manifold wisdom for the world to see him. It is the call of the church. It is the call of you and I. You say, Mark, that's a heavy thing. That's, a, that's, that's so heavy that you would put that on us and now you're going to pray. You can't even finish your sermon. Your time is up. And so, you know, you're going to lay this on us. Then we're going to pray and we're going to get out of here. Kind of deal. You put that on us. But can I tell you, here's the beauty of all of this. Jesus knows us so well. That he spoke to his disciples, speaking to us in Luke chapter 24. And he simply says this. Hey. I'm not going to leave you without power because I know that this task is impossible for you to do upon your own. But I want you to go wait and I want you to be clothed with power from on high to do what I've called you to do. Because you may not know it yet because they still thought he was going to overthrow Rome and be the king. He said, but you may not know it yet, but I've chosen you to be the brushes. To reveal my manifold wisdom to all generations. And you don't do this within your own power, but I will clothe you with power from on high. What does that look like this afternoon? Take some time, get by yourself, go to the book of Hebrews, and read chapter 13. And it will simply show you very practically what this looks like for your life. So would you bow your heads for a moment with me? Because I think what I want to address and what I believe the Spirit wants to address in our life this morning, those of you that have discounted yourself in this journey, for those of you who have said that, one, I'm not qualified, two, that if God only knew my heart, and we say things like that, if God only knew my heart or God only knew what I was thinking, and can I tell you, God knows everything about your heart and God knows every thought that you ever have had and he even knows the intent of your heart and that means that he knows what you're going to think before you ever think it. And so we kind of lay that excuse to the side and say, Lord, here I am and here's my heart. And God says, I know. I know because you're my child. And so what, I, what we celebrate in the Lord today before we pray together is that God is not only pleased with the finished product of our life, but God is also very pleased in our journey because he meets us where we are in our journey. He walks this out with us. So where you are today in this journey with Ken, he is there with you, working through this in your life. So you can say, I'm discounted because I can't do this, and I'm discounted because of my past. And, and, and you can disqualify yourself all you want, and God says, no, no, here is the thing. If you are called, if you are following me, 
then I want to use you as brushes to reveal my manifold wisdom to the world. So today all God is saying to you is trust me. Trust me. So let's pray, Father. Today as you open our hearts to your scripture, as you challenged us from the book of Acts and your church there. That God, as we sit here and we feel the heavy weight of this, of this fact, of this thought that we are the brushes that you as the great painter used to paint on the canvas of history, your manifold wisdom. We realize that we are not called to do this on our own. We're not called to push this through just by our sheer willpower and personal strength. But God, we realize that we depend upon you. And we rest in you. And you empower us, Lord. You give us strength. So, Father, we come against the doubt and the words of the enemy that would discount us in this journey. And we realize, Father, that you have chosen us. So empower us today, Father. Empower us to make disciples through you in your kingdom. Use us and we submit ourselves to you. Our doubts and our fears, our imperfections, we submit those things to you today. Use us for your glory and for your honor. Thank you, Father.